we're going to continue with our uh, Unfolding the Great Commission series. Um, and the little sub-series of that is um, what we're calling Origins at this particular point because um, we want to explore some of the characteristics of the origins of the early church, some of the key patterns, characteristics, um, distinctives, um, and how they relate to us, okay? So um, I know the, the way Sunday mornings work, it's mostly me or someone talking at you, but as much as possible, I'd love to encourage you to engage with us in this, even in our conversations throughout the week or afterwards, as we try to think and wrestle with how the Spirit of God wants to help us apply this to our lives. So my little kind of previously on this series, here's just a few points just to kind of bring us up to speed. This is what we've done already. We've kind of known that Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, has architected and constructed his gospel, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, in a very careful and patterned way, okay? He's trying to tell us some things, and that's why we want to go through this relatively um, methodically um, so that we kind of get caught up by the Holy Spirit and what he wants to say to us um, in the way that Luke had written the book. Um, second point, Pentecost was the moment the church was birthed by the Spirit, okay? Something supernatural happened at the day of Pentecost, right? All the Jews were gathered. They reckon that uh, Jerusalem maybe swollen the festival season from about 50,000 people, maybe right up to 1 million, all right? It's like Port Rush in the Northwest, all right? Or, or the week of New Horizon or whatever it might be. It just swells, okay? And that's what happened in Jerusalem <clears throat> at that particular time. All the Jews in the uh, diaspora came back, uh, or diaspora, sorry, came back, and it was a supernatural moment when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And we'll see as we go through this that the Spirit continues to be the key leader, the key agent in the establishment and the direction and the growth of the early church, okay? The, the next thing we've learned is that the dunamis nature of the Spirit, right, the power, which is the dunamis, the Greek word for power there, to be endued with power from an high, um, initiate and catalyze genuine what we call apostolic movements. So we want you to be familiar with these terms so they're not just sort of big words, but they actually, we actually understand what, what these are Bible words and this is what they mean. That the, a genuine apostolic sent out, that's what apostle means, to be sent out. And the Holy Spirit, when he came upon the disciples, they couldn't stay in that little room. They couldn't stay in the prayer meeting. They were thrust out onto the street. Um, and then the next just couple of points before we move on, the church walked then, we learned the church walked in the way of the founder of that movement. And the founder of the movement was Jesus. And the disciples walked in his ways, which the, the disciples became the apostles. And they followed the way of Jesus because he taught them a particular way of living over three years. And then they taught that way to the early converts and to those who were converted. And so the implications of Pentecost were both wide. The new age of God's grace was for everyone. It was for all flesh. It was going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? So just at a very basic level, as we study this, it should challenge us to live our lives wide, to go beyond the sphere of influence that we just find ourselves, to break out of our comfort zones at times because the dunamis power of the Spirit will over and should overflow and should move us. We should all live our lives as sent ones. Um, but it also has implications of depth. As the Spirit was poured out, the Father's love was poured into hearts in new ways. And that 
did a work amongst these early converts to make them brothers and sisters because they were now sons and daughters of a new humanity in this deep, deep covenantal community. And that's what we want to pick up this morning because we want to learn from this new community that was being formed, this new humanity that was being formed in and through the person of Jesus. And uh, we've read this a few weeks in a row, but we're going to read it again because we want to just center our hearts around the text. So come Holy Spirit, as we read your word, let it never just become familiar. Let it just trigger our hearts and speak to our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Okay? So it was unbelievable, but it wasn't rocket science either. What did they devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching, the way of Jesus, the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And because they did that, all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending a temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Such an amazing picture into the reality of what God was now doing in the world. Jesus had modeled a way of life in front of the disciples. He'd shown them the kind of family that he wanted to create. And now through the Spirit, <clears throat> this work is being carried on. A whole new community, a whole new humanity is being formed. And it's remarkable that this Jewish minority persecuted sect cult, some people might have called it, the small Jewish minority persecuted sect of people will help initiate through the Spirit the greatest movement that's ever hit the history of the world and will include all people from all nations. From this little room, this little room, a bunch of Jewish Jewish people on the edge of the Roman Empire, they're, they're, they're through them, and what the Spirit has done on them, this movement is going to take in every people group in every nation of the world. It's, it's quite incredible. And, <clears throat> and we want to continue to reflect on why this is and look at what are the implications and the applications for us to learn. Ultimately, we want to keep asking ourselves this story, how, this, this question, sorry. How do we locate our story in this big, great story of God? And last week, Bruna uh, looked at the first of those. You'll notice that one of the things that they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. And uh, she showed us that there were certain practices, some day, some, we, we might even call them in today's world, sacraments, sacred practices, very kind of, normal earthy practices, but sacred ones that kind of draw us into a place where we can experience the life-transforming presence of Jesus Christ and be, and be changed. And, and more than just practice them, they started to embody a way of living, okay? And uh, I can't really emphasize this enough. It'll come through what I share this morning. The early Christians were known for the way they lived, every bit as much as being known for what they believed. Let me say that again. 
The early church were known for the way they walked, the way they believed things, more than probably being known for what they actually believed, which for the most part is different than Northern Ireland evangelicalism, okay? Remember, <clears throat> this is the way, and this is why we keep using this phrase, that they walked in the way of Christ and his apostles. Why did they embody this so passionately? Why did this change their life? Why did they walk in a particular way? And it's quite simple. And you can't make this happen. Only the Spirit can do this. But they were just so captivated by Jesus, so devoted to Jesus. The key word, or one of the key words in that is, and they devoted themselves. Just as I say this, the thought comes into my head. Uh, some of you know Rachel's dad's really sick, and he's, uh, <clears throat> he, he, you know, he, you know, he's probably only a, a day or so left, and and it's amazing to watch uh, Rachel's mum. It's it's she slept on a chair beside his bed the last two or three nights. You know, it's it's amazing to watch that 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 devotion. That that's that's what you call being devoted. Because you love someone so much, you devote yourself to them. Your life becomes their life. Yeah, this is this is what de devotion is. And 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 there's something about the disciples. They didn't just routinely go through these things because they had to now be good boys and girls. Because Jesus told them that he was going back to heaven, and they had to keep the rules. Right? These, these people were devoted to Jesus. The, the, the Spirit had ignited a fire in their hearts, a fire. It was burning inside them of love for Jesus, and they practiced these particular things because they helped fan into flame this fire. They wanted to do whatever they needed to do to nurture the love and the sense of devotion. And, uh, and that's why they did it. And so the practices that we're teaching on today... And over the next few weeks, this is what I really want you to get. We're not teaching on the breaking of bread because we're just into the breaking of bread. We're not teaching this morning, which I'm going to teach on now, on prayer because we're in the prayer. We're not really in the prayer. In fact, if we were, we'd have to say we're not maybe, well, I would have to say I'm not that good in it. We're not into prayer. We're into Jesus. So we pray. We're not into the breaking of bread as some kind of thing that we hold up that defines us necessarily. We're into Jesus, so we break bread and we take the cup because it reminds us of his sacrifice and what he did. We're not into fellowship for the sake of fellowshipping. Like some of us might not even choose to hang out with each other if it was just about fellowship, but we're into Jesus. And so we realize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we get together and we worship and we allow God to allow us to fall in love with one another. This is what was going on in the early church. They were devoted to Jesus. And Bruna helped us understand why the breaking of bread was such an important thing for us to remember. How it reminded us of who Jesus actually is and was. That when we take the bread and that when we drink the cup, that we're reminded that this Jesus who has captured our hearts and won our hearts with their love, how he acted, how he served, how he lived a sacrificial way, how he preferred others, how he was always thinking of family. It's one bread. I know we all get a little bit of bread, but it's from one loaf because we're one body. Yeah? And, 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 and so 
when we take and when we teach in these things, we're not teaching them because these are the things you have to do because you signed up to be a Christian, right? We got passionately won by the love of Jesus Christ. There's nobody like him. Everybody wants a king like Jesus, yeah? And when we encounter him, then we want to allow and ensure that our love for him continues. We do them because we love him. And um, it's an opportunity to renew love for him. And so what I want, and so why we do these is they help us love. Because as, as I'll talk about later on with prayer, because sometimes our love grows cold. Sometimes our love dissipates a little bit. And you need to practice certain things in order to foster that love. In order to renew that love. This is a really key point, actually, when it comes to the early church. They didn't think their way into a new kind of living, which is the way our education system works. They lived their way into a new kind of thinking. Right? That's a slightly different, well, it's hugely different. Like, when, when the early Christians, like, who ever feels like forgiving anyone? You don't think your way into forgiveness. You can't. Because if you just to think about it, you wouldn't. Because you can find 14 more different arguments for why you shouldn't forgive them. Yeah. You live your way in there. You choose to forgive. You choose and you keep choosing. And when you keep choosing to forgive them, one day the Spirit gives you the grace to actually feel like you've forgiven them. But you don't necessarily feel like it first. And so we break bread. We come to prayer. We come to prayer this Wednesday night, even when we don't want to. When it's cold and wet and snowing outside, we come. If I could tell you the amount of times I didn't want to come to the prayer meeting or the amount of times I didn't even want to come to church, right? You know, you'd probably sack me or want me sacked, right? But, but I come because when I come, something happens in my heart. And even if it doesn't happen, if we just get in the rhythm of coming whenever I like, then I'll just fluctuate. And so even when my feelings aren't like, Tip top, we choose to practice certain things, and we practice the breaking of bread, and we practice prayer, and we practice loving one another, and we practice coming to church and being together. And so, I want to talk to you a little bit more today about prayer, because that was another one of the practices. The early church were devoted to prayer, most likely to set prayers, actually, right? Rhythms of prayer, because they were good Jewish boys and girls who would have prayed at certain times each day. And so they probably kept those prayers going. They would have said, like, yeah, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, for example. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. They said these things in the morning and in the evening. They, they would have had set prayers, but now these set prayers were just all reordered around the person of Jesus because he'd become the fulfillment of the story. Something had been ignited, and they loved to talk about God, to talk to God, and they loved to do that together. There was a wild devotion and love in the early church. And we can say with confidence, I think, that the growth, the expansion, the effectiveness of the early church is attributed to their prayer life. They loved to pray. Prayer was the heartbeat. Prayer was the engine. Prayer was the primary beating heart of the church. It was both the heartbeat and the lifeblood. It kind of pumped the spiritual life of Jesus around the body. And I really, really want to encourage us to be, uh, uh, we are that, but I want us to become even more that, a people of prayer. 
Now, I'm going to try and debunk some of the mindsets that are maybe coming into your head when I say that. But I want us to be a people in conversation perpetually with Jesus. To be a people that are in connection with heaven. John Calvin said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Eugene Peterson said, prayers train us in conversation with the God who seeks us out. Prayer trains us in conversation with the God who seeks us out. You know, we just sung it, your goodness is running after me. God is seeking us out. And prayer is the way that we start to dialogue and engage with the maker of the universe. The older I get, the most the thing I'm impressed with the most is praying people. And the thing I'm most grateful for in my life, the older I get, is the people that taught me to pray. You know, I've been fortunate to have a great home I was brought up in, and I think the greatest legacy that I've been given is a mom who taught me how to pray. And more than that, a mom who I constantly seen praying. She like, I mean, we were somewhere yesterday, I can't remember what she prayed for, but it was something random in the car, going somewhere, and it was like, do you even need to pray about that? But it was just the whole life's become prayer. Waking up in the mornings early and going up to get my breakfast and opening the study door and seeing her on her, on her knee. The greatest legacy in my life, I think, is, is a mother who's prayed. And a father too. But particularly my mom, it's been impressed upon my heart. And the older I get, <clears throat> the more I realize that the best thing that she could have given me is to teach me how to pray. Because prayer is where I'm formed become more like Jesus, and how I get involved with what Jesus has, has, has taught me. And this prayer that the early church developed was heartfelt, passionate prayer. I love what Pete Gregg says. He says, you know that song, As the Deer Pants for the Water? It's a beautiful song, isn't it? We all love it. But it shouldn't really be set to kind of Bambi-like music. It should be more rock and roll and heavy metal, that kind of As the Deer Pants for the Water, because it's visceral. It's part of who we are. It's heart and soul and passion. And that's where prayer came from because they were captivated deeply in their love for Jesus. And that deep part of them that was captivated with love for Jesus had to connect with them. And so we shouldn't be surprised in some ways that they were so devoted to prayer because this new community of heaven, this new colony of heaven, this uh, was connected and carry in the atmosphere of heaven, the Spirit had been poured out. And these men and women were so submitted to the Lordship of Jesus that the atmosphere of heaven was with them. And that connection that they'd already had with Jesus, the core of that group anyway, they wanted to continue. So it's no surprise that prayer would have been a central practice to the early church. And I, I, so I could talk to you in lots of different ways about prayer. I've done lots of talks over the years, particularly being involved in 24-7 prayer, about prayer, and we could get all theoretical and into style and form and all of that, and that might be helpful, but I don't really want to go there, (laughs) because first and foremost, I want it to be about devoted prayer. As leaders, I think the primary thing that we have to be, it's not like we're responsible for it, because we all have to take responsibility for our own lives, but one of the things that I think as leaders we need to be most aware of and measure the health of our church by is the level of devotion. You know, that's what we have to sit around and go, is it hot at the moment? Is it hot or is it lukewarm? Because if it's lukewarm, 
we need to get on our faces and we need to cry out to God because the biggest miracle sometimes is just wanting to pray. The biggest miracle is wanting to get up in the morning and wanting to get up that little bit early or wanting to spend some time or the biggest miracle is wanting to develop a heart of prayer. And the best thing that we can do sometimes is pray that prayer. Holy Spirit, would you defibrillate my heart? Would you shock it back in to sync with you so that I can be devoted in prayer? And that's the kind of prayer I want to talk about. Because we're not really into prayer. We're into Jesus. And prayer is how we connect. And we can do that by talking, communing, engaging, and enjoying and expressing our relationship with God. The bottom line is, it's why we exist even if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you've just become a Christian, it's, it's why you exist. That's why you're here. We exist to be in relationship with our maker. Somebody once uh, said that prayerlessness, like this prayerlessness is practical atheism. Think about that for a minute. Prayerlessness is a practical form of atheism. Uh, if, if you say you believe in God but you never talk to him, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of pr- practice of atheism when we never talk to the God that we so-called believe in, because this God that we're talking about, he wants to talk. This is why he's different than all the other gods that they worship. They don't have a mouth. They can't speak. Our God, from the beginning, has wanted to speak. He actually created the earth itself by speaking and communing. And, um, and so the f- it's no wonder, as I said, the fundamental activity of the church is, is prayer, because God's intention has always been that we would be closely connected with him. Jesus showed us this with the disciples, didn't he? He, um, he reminded them of the words of the prophets. He was like, guys, it was like Jesus was saying, guys, this is what God has always been trying to say. My house shall be called, like Isaiah said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It wasn't my house shall be called a house of activity or of um, great clubs or great programs or any of that, sure wasn't it? It was my house shall be called a house of prayer because God fundamentally wants interaction and relationship with the ones that he created in his image. Jesus reinforces this is the heart of God. Heaven and earth was always supposed to overlap and interlock. Uh, That was the ideal that Eden presents us in Genesis chapter 1. God and man communing and walking together in deep union. And that's why the fall in Genesis 3, when mankind disobeyed God, that the communion that man and God enjoyed was affected deeply. And that's the travesty of the fall, because something about communion and relationship and like being up close and personal with one another, that that was affected deeply, and it broke the heart of God. And and, and so the, the prophets throughout the Old Testament, they will try and tell us that. They're like, Isaiah's like, Hosea, even, people like that, they're like, you've lost your knowledge of God. I mean, you're coming to church and you're having the odd sacrifice, but you don't know him anymore. You don't know him and he wants to be known by you and he wants you to feel known by him. Isaiah would say, heaven is my throne. The words of God through Isaiah, heaven is my throne and earth is my throne. Bootstool. The idea was that God would be like sitting up on his throne in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the tabernacle, that was like where God rested his feet. So it's that kind of idea that, that heaven and earth are 
interlocking and overlapping. It's like Jacob's ladder. We see this imagery throughout the Old Testament that there's like, that this is what God has always wanted. So when Jesus comes and says the kingdom is at hand, it's that heaven is broken into earth in a whole new way. And the psalmist, so I'm just giving you some examples that this has always been God's intention. The psalmist who kind of got it, he said, show me your ways, O Lord. I want to but you can't know someone's ways. Like, you can know their deeds. You can know what they do. You can know that they work for the, you know, the police or in the schools. or you can, you can know what they do, but you don't really know their ways and, and, until you know them. And the psalmist, he kind of got it. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in truth. And, and so Jesus, Jesus brought all this, kind of climaxed all of this when he says, Lads, I don't call you servants. You're not my staff team. You're my friends. Because everything I've heard from the Father, I'm now making known to you. And so, in the same passage, he says, I am a vine, and you are the branches. Remain in me. Abide in me. And the way that we abide and the way that we remain is this incredible gift of prayer. And Jesus comes to fulfill the story. And what is Jesus' primary activity? It's prayer. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, who had kind of like a direct line or whatever it was, who helped create the world himself, if Jesus needed to pray, like it would make sense, wouldn't it, that we would maybe think that us clampets like would, would pray as well, wouldn't it? Like if Jesus prayed and he lived a life of prayer, then, then it would make sense that I develop a life of prayer. So Jesus walked around fully in the Father. He was always praying. He was always doing the things that the Father was doing. He was always communing with the Father. It's beautiful when you, when you read it. And when you read it with that lens, you see it more and more, particularly actually in the book of Luke. And so what happens is, <clears throat> do you know when you sort of smell a good thing? The disciples get a whiff of this kind of living. And they're like, like, we, we, like these are Jewish boys, Right? So they were brought up being told to pray. They probably prayed all their life and in some kind of guise or form. And, and, but then they begin, to get, they begin to get curious about this prayer life of Jesus. What is it about his confidence and his sonship? What is it about this man that doesn't feel like he's always in a fight over his ego to try and prove himself? Why is he so confident in who he is without like being proud? How can he love people the way that he does? How, why is there such a peace and atmosphere about his life? And I think the disciples start to realize it's something about his prayer life. It's something about the way he connects with the Father that, that forms who he is, that helps him understand his calling. And so with this is all going on, I think the disciples are like, there's a, it's like Jesus' confidence in who he was as a son of the Father. I think it exposed the vacancy in their heart of not knowing the love of the Father. And they became aware of, we don't know God the way this man loves, the way this man knows God. We don't know the Father in the same way. And, and so the only thing that we have record in the New Testament of Jesus, of the disciples actually asking Jesus to teach them is prayer. And so they're like, what is this? What, what is this kind of, thing that Jesus does or this way of life that he practices that makes him the man that he is 
or that makes him as effective as the man that he is, then we got to get we got to get that. We got to get hold of that. We we need to know what that is. And so they say, Rabbi, teach us how to pray. Do you ever feel like that? Feel like that this morning? Like you've been brought up saying your prayers, but but maybe this morning you're like, Jesus, I need to teach me. I need to teach me how to pray. I just I, I want to have that kind of depth of intimacy with you that that you had. Teach me how you pray, because I've I've heard all the other prayers, and like there wasn't that there. They've all got a bit long winded and showy and. And, and would you, so would you teach me how to pray? And so Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer, which is a mix of intimate, intimate language that just says, come as you are. And it's also an invitation to get involved in what God's doing in the world. And so I want to I just take the second half of what I'm saying this morning to kind of partly repeat what I've just said, but to frame it around two things. And prayer, prayer, I think, and I'd love us to go away thinking of these two things. If Jesus is to teach us how to pray, right? Jesus invites us in our prayer lives into intimacy, into a life of intimacy with him. And he in, invites us into a place of involvement with him. So let's look at the first one of these. Hopefully it'll make sense. Prayer is, first of all, an invitation to intimacy. First and foremost, prayer is relational. It's not mechanical. You don't become a technician in prayer. It's, it's not even transactional. And I know that sounds like obvious, but if we're being honest, some of us live our lives like that. Jesus, if I pray today, then you'll make sure nothing bad happens to me. And the other side of that is, Jesus, if I pray today, you'll do all these good things for me. Because you think that your God's love for you is contingent on how much prayers you pray. And it's not. The principle of grace just completely knocks that on its head. Prayer is relational. Deeply, deeply relational. The problem is we've just had such a wrong understanding of that. We've felt, even though we maybe even have been told this, we feel like prayer is something we have to impress God with. And so, we adopt certain prayer speak. We adopt certain prayer language. We change the accent of our voice when we're praying because we feel like that will make us sound more holy. We develop the preaching, singing tone when we pray. Lord, we just come to you today in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for all that you've done in our lives. And look, you know, and we somehow think that God's going to hear that a little bit more. Yeah. Or, or we think of those kind of key brilliant verses that are really, really good in a prayer, don't we? We think like, if I, if I get up and pray at this point, Plucking up the courage, it's a bit quiet, but I'll, I'll pray at this point, and here's the verse I'm going to land, you know? Or here's a little phrase that's current at the moment that's going around, and I'll throw that one in. And then just as you're about to do that, somebody else gets up and prays your prayer. Isn't that right? And you're left, oh my goodness, I can't pray now because I have nothing to say. Because prayer becomes the thing that we feel like we have to impress others with, and even worse, that we have to impress God with. And... And, and that's a very narrow understanding of God and of prayer. But unfortunately, it's the way that is common. And so when new people come to know Jesus, they enter into this thing and they're like, what is this? I was talking to that person over coffee and they spoke like from Portadown. And when they prayed, this sounded like they were from America or from England. What is this all about? And so they're like, 
this is a freak show going on at this moment in this building. That's what's going on in their heads. When, instead of just bringing who we are before the Father, who we are. God doesn't want to hear what you think he wants to hear. He wants to hear what's inside you. Let me say that again. God doesn't want to hear what you think he wants to hear necessarily. He wants to know what's inside you. It's the real you connecting with the real him. Because he is the essence of reality. You can't worship God unless you worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you're trying to be somebody else or sound more impressive than what, uh, how you really feel at a particular point before him, you're not worshiping in truth. Yeah. But when we come in truth, the spirit can work with that. And Jesus was rebuking that kind of prayer. He was rebuking that kind of long-winded, stand in the street corner, let everybody hear how great a prayer you are kind of prayer. He was going after that. And he was saying, when you pray, it was very simple. It was very to the point. <clears throat> and bearing to him what is on our hearts. It's the overflow of our hearts. Uh, this is, says it even better than I just did there. Every thought or feeling is a valid entry into prayer. What's important is that we pray what's inside of us and not what we think God would like to see inside of us. Then that, that goes against what some of us think prayer is. Even the religious kind of thing that rises up within myself at times, it goes against that. But life has taught me there's sometimes that, and, and, and even if we haven't really maybe been through that much suffering in life, that kind of thing we don't really fully get. But once you've truly kind of suffered and you've nothing else left in you bar a broken whimper or groan, right, then you start to learn that that's what God wants. And that's what God hears. And that's a valid entry into prayer life. And the Spirit can work with that. And yes, of course, matures in our prayer life, but that's where we have to start. And I just want to go right back to the origins, the basics here. Some of us don't know how to pray because we've never unzipped our heart and our soul before God as we are with the expectations of maybe good parents expectations in a church setting or whatever. And we just never, we've always thought we had to carry something more than who we really are to God. And that's not real prayer. And as much as God is gracious and merciful, I think sometimes God's like, just bring me yourself. Would you just bring me yourself? I'm tired of hearing of who you think I think you want to be. Just bring me yourself. Let's start there. This is grace. Okay, this is grace. And when we do that, prayer becomes wild and fun and passionate. I love good old brother Lawrence. He was a cook. He was a, he was a monk, but he was a cook. He had one of, the, one of the least jobs in the monastery, and he decided to write this little, try this little thing, which became a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. If you've never read it, you should. It's a brilliant little read, little short read. And how he tried, just as he washed the pots and pans, and as he kind of maybe did stuff in the garden or whatever, how he could become aware of God's presence and just talk to him. Just talk to him as a, as a father and as a friend. There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. Here's how you learn. Do you want to know how you learn to pray? Pray. You learn how to pray by, by praying. Start talking to God. And the other thing I would say is get around other people that, that know how to pray. Now, not around other people that intimidate you, 
because they've got like big words in their vocabulary. But get around people that they may be further on in prayer, but when you're around them, something in your spirit lifts and develops and grows. Surround yourself with those kind of people. And even for those of us who feel bored at prayer, right, which happens to us all, by the way, if you scratch below the surface, you'll find a vein of prayer. You'll find it, if you, if you work hard, a longing to make connection with the one who knows you more than you know yourself. And that's why prayer is so important, because it, it helps us to become aware of who we truly are, right? And that's why we need to develop a healthy, flourishing, exciting, passionate prayer life. Because we need reminded in a world that's trying to tell us who we really are, who we really not are, we need reminded who we truly are. We're sons and daughters. I, I have been a Christian for most of my life. I can't remember when I wasn't a Christian, put it like that, right? So I've been a Christian most of my life. I've been in ministry doing this kind of thing for 20 years or more, right? Every day, I still need to hear. Because there's all sorts of seductions out there trying to tell us who we are. I just need to be reminded. Alan, you're my son. My delight is on you. I just need a place in my day where I can hear that, hear that word, hear that whisper of the Lord. Rachel laughs at me because sometimes, I might have told you this before, but Rachel laughs at me sometimes because if we're in the car and we're, you know, my dad phones her or whatever, and I answer, <laughs> I answer the phone in the car, and the conversation is just something like this. Right, Dad? How you doing, son? How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? All right, good. Good day. Hi, it's going rightly. Hi, what about you? Yep. Hi, good, good day. Hi. And Rachel's sitting because she's like a little bit more proactive in kind of conversation and, and all of that. She's like just going, <laughs> <laughs> just doing all these hand signals. And and I'm I'm I, I, I just keep on, and and sometimes we talk about some stuff and sometimes we don't. And then, and then see you later. Then ah oh, okay, see you later, Dad. See. You. And she's like, what was that? I was like, I don't know. But like when you talk to your mom, it goes on for 45 minutes. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but here's the point, right? It's just good to hear his voice. When I, when I just engage my dad on the phone, he doesn't really have to say it too much. But just over the years, you know, you know you're his son, you know. And when I just, I'm on the phone with him sometimes, here, here's what I would say. It reminds me of his foreness for me. Does that make sense? I, I just get reminded. I just, I, I might not even put these words to it at the time, but as I was reflecting on it as I was preparing, it's like I'm drawn into a moment where he is advocating for me. He has been there through the whole arc of my life. And just hearing his voice, I'm just reminded of, He's, he's for me, and he, he's going to be for me. And I can't remember a time that he's actually never been for me. Now, I know that that kind of an example touches all kinds of triggers in all of our hearts, because for some of us, that hasn't necessarily been the case. And I just really want you to hear the Father say to you, the Heavenly Father who wants to heal every wound in your heart, that that's why he longs for you and him to have a prayer relationship. 
Because as great as that has been, and as a massive blessing it's been in my life, my dad's not God. And the only reason he can love me the way he loves me is because of, a, of the Heavenly Father, right? And, and he can't, you know, and, and there's been times that he hasn't had the answer for me. And, and so I have had to learn how to allow the Father of all fathers to be my father. And the only way that we can learn that is by understanding and knowing the love of the Father by creating a space for him to speak. And when that happens, prayer moves from a duty to a delight, <laughs> right? You know, those of us who've been brought up thinking prayer is a bit of a duty, prayer can become a delight. And one of the ways it can become a delight, I think, is actually when we develop some discipline with it. Now, like other relationships, as I said at the start, our, our love can kind of cool a little bit. And and we need disciplines to allow that love to be found in the flame. For those of us who are married, we'll know that. Or even within maybe family settings, you know, you know you love each other, but if you know, it feels like you could work at kind of stirring the flame up again a little bit. And so we, we put certain practices and disciplines in place to do that. And sometimes when we don't have the feelings, we need to just dig in and hang on and choose to keep on loving and making living our way into our thinking. And then the feelings will come again. Because desire, this is quite important, desire without discipline will dissipate. Okay? Desire without any discipline will dissipate. And therefore, we need to find ways. So let's get really practical. Here's what I do when that happens. I start to pray other people's prayers. Sometimes I get some liturgy. And I read other people's prayers because I feel like I'm just bored listening to the sound of my own voice. Or I feel like I have very little to say. And so I mix up my prayer life. I pray in tongues. I pray some liturgy. I, this is the key one. I have learned how to pray the Psalms particularly. Right? Prayer is dialogue with God. And the Bible is a book about God and man dialoguing together. So pray the scriptures. It's probably the best thing that you can do. And learn how to pray the Psalms. Okay? Just say them out loud. And just keep doing that. And you will find that they will be formed. And some days it won't be like an appropriate psalm fits your kind of place. But that's okay. You just keep doing it. You get caught up in conversation with God daily. And when that happens, I find desire, right? When we first get saved or when we first fall in love with someone, if you want to use that analogy, like, you know, like, you know time and rationale kind of goes out the window, you know, because the desire is just taking over us. And when we first encounter Jesus, maybe that's the kind of desire that we have. We're happy to pray and we can look back on those times when we pray at night and day and with our friends and all of that. But, but, but then the kind of feelings themselves and the adrenaline feels like it's worn off a lot of it. And we need discipline to, to foster that. And once we develop a life of discipline, then prayer moves to delight. It moves to a deep delight that we can't do without. Okay? That's the invitation of prayer to a life of intimacy. But as we do that, uh, and, and let me just say, just, just as I move on from that, <clears throat> you can do that in lots of different ways, stillness, shouting, singing, doing it at home, doing it in the car, doing it in the shower, uh, individually and together. We'd encourage you to have a place, though. We would encourage you to have your own place, set it apart for meeting with God. And I would encourage you to do it together. I would encourage you, because the they, early church did prayer together. That, that's the importance of corporate prayer. 
praying with other people. Here's just an observation. Over the years, this is what I would say, very few people fall away from the Lord who come to corporate prayer. That's just something I have observed over the last 20 years. I can't think of people that are regular just putting themselves in the place of being with God's people, in the place of prayer. I, I can't think of hardly anybody that's fallen away from the Lord that's got too distracted. Because even if they are distracted, that becomes a place where that's found more and more in the flame. So let's be marked by our intimacy with God. And just in the last five, ten minutes, I want to say that that transitions us as we fall in love with God, as we are engulfed as the early church were into a life of intimacy with God, we become aware of what God's heart is. And we get thrust not just out of a place of knowing who we are in prayer, into knowing what we get to get involved with. And so prayer is not just an invitation to intimacy, it's an invitation to involvement. It's what John Wesley said, prayer is where the action is. <laughs> and uh, when you're in relationship with someone, when you fall in love with them, the real fun is not just that you get to be the other person's friend or spouse. The real fun is that you get to do some stuff together. You get to build a family or fulfill dreams or travel or whatever it is. And with the Lord, we don't get invited just into a place of intimacy. We do that first and foremost. But out of that place, he says, now I want you to pray, let my kingdom come. We get to co-partner. And I would go as far to say we get to co-create things with God in prayer. And, uh, and this is where I think the Lord is leading us as a people. You know, when, when, you, when you fall in love with somebody and you become more and more aware of the things that they love, I don't know if any of you have found this over the years, maybe of marriage or whatever, like some of the things that you detested, you maybe still do, or th some of the things that the other person loves, but slowly but surely, like you don't, like maybe, maybe it's going too far to say you love them now too, but you do develop a sense of sympathy because you know how much it means to your spouse, right? And that kind of principle is what happens is when we fall in love with God and when we align our hearts up with his lordship and we become aware of the sonship that we now have in him, he starts to reveal and lay things on our hearts that are on his heart, the things that he loves. We start to think the way he thinks. And this is where prayer gets really exciting. And this is what the early church modeled. They had deep times of prayer, deep times of being in the presence of God. And their God grabbed hold of their hearts and they declared the ways and the works of the Lord into being. They literally watched heaven break out around them. And so prayer should be the place that we're fed inwardly, but it also should be the place where, where we're propelled outwardly. That's what prayer should be. We breathe God in and we breathe Him out, right? We take that big, God, I'm your son again, all over again today. Your mercies are new. I receive your love. And we breathe out in where we live our lives every day in a posture, in a life of prayer. And this is the way the early church helped to begin to change the world. Because prayer bends us into a certain posture that when we're not in the prayer room, we're still praying. If you read, just really quick, if you read in Acts 16 when Paul's like on a mission trip, if you want to put it like that, in Philippi, he's like, how would you start the mission trip? He's like, well, we'll just go to where people are praying. Or we'll go praying. And as he goes praying, he meets a girl called Lydia. He goes to a place of prayer again. And there's a slave girl starts to follow them. And she gets delivered from the demon that's on her. He's in the jail in Philippi. And he starts to pray and to sing. Even when he's in prison. And the whole building starts to shake. 
and the, and the, and the doors are because they just lived a life of prayer that involved them with God's world. And one of the ways that we become involved in the mission of God is what we call intercessory prayer. This is praying on behalf of others. This is when we get God's heart, we start to pray that into being. And the early church, this is the early church were pregnant with the assignments of heaven. And what would it be like to be a people here in Portadown that are pregnant with the assignments of heaven for what God wants to do in this town and city? Without doing a kind of GCSE biology here, how do you get pregnant? Intimacy. You know somebody in an exclusive, deep, powerful, beautiful, surrendered way. That's how you get pregnant. So prayer is an invitation to intimacy. And then what happens? You have to give birth to it. You have to care for that. You have to nurture it. And then you need a few midwives around to help deliver it. You need a few specialists around to help that come into the world. And something gives birth that changes everything. And God is calling us. There's a mantle. I'm going to go as far as that this morning. There's a mantle, I think, on this body of believers to be a praying people. An intimate praying people surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus to become pregnant with the assignments of heaven. We either do that or we'll just play church. Or we'll just go through the motions. or, Or if we want to see something new, will take up the Spirit's invitation to become pregnant with the designs of heaven. And that does something in the Father's heart that we can only imagine. When Annie was four, three or four, and starting to become more aware of others, <laughs> when you are a dad and she used to come asking me for sweets or whatever, as a dad you always kind of want to, even though your your wife's a dentist, you still really you, you do you still you still want to sneak a few. So you do you want to there's something in the father, isn't there, that, that wants to respond to a desire in his children, and that the wisdom is obviously working out is, is are they good desires and good plans and all of that. But I, re- I remember a particular moment when one of the first or second times when I thought she was too young to get this yet. She asked me for something that I, I think it was sweets, and then she said. And Daddy, can I have one for Aaron as well? I just remember the first time she did that. And I remember that something happened inside me as a father because not only did I want to just bless my child, but she was carrying part of my heart now because she wanted to share that with her sister. And so when we come towards God, and God wants us to come with all the stuff that's in our own lives that we need, but when we come to God and say, God, we are here, we are here, we will come out this Wednesday night, or let's just use that as an example. We are here to pray your heart into being for those who do not, let you know, do not yet know you. We need to know that that pushes a button, if such a thing exists. But it presses a place in the heart of God that moves him deeply. It moves him. And do not think for one moment that any of those intercessory prayers are unheard or not listened to. That is where God <clears throat> wants us to go and to be. I'm going to leave it there.
because I just want to respect the time, stuff with the kids and stuff this morning. But I want us to be aware, I just want to finish with this. Throughout the Bible, we see this. Every time people show up and stand in the gap, it does something in God's heart. And the early church kind of take this to a whole other dimension. We've been staying around Acts 2, but if you were to go to Acts 4, it would tell us, when they started to get persecuted, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word in boldness. I can only talk from my own stories. I've tried to teach this. But the wildest times in my life living for Jesus have always been birthed out of prayer. One of my best friends, many of you know Rick, um, Rick Preston, when we were when we were 18 together, we'd been into prayer. But when we were 18, 17, 18, he was maybe a bit earlier than me. When we got into Jesus, then we prayed like we never prayed before. And we got into like lunchtime at school. And we used to pray, four of us. Within two months, there was 50 people praying. I can still remember tables tables shaking in the RE room as the power of God came in that room. And and the people were filled with the spirit at break time in school. Not a, right? This this is where the power and presence of God come. I can still remember people getting saved in our school almost weekly. Why? Because you were devoted to Jesus. And so we prayed. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit is leading that, leading us into the greatest legacy that we can leave our children is to be a praying people. History belongs to the intercessors, those who believe the future into being. The future belongs to whoever can envision a new and desirable possibility, which with faith then fixes upon as inevitable. The only way you can see the future, a God-designed future, is if you know him. And then you fix your eyes and faith in what he's told you. And you pray that into being with all you've got. Let's stand our feet. Just as we finish. Sorry, can't not read this quote. I just want to encourage you in all your personal prayers, the prayers you're praying for your kids, for prodigal sons and daughters, right? Just, just let these words settle on you as we finish. Each and every prayer is a tiny piece of a great cosmic puzzle, which when fitted together will allow for the completion of the grand picture of the almighty Lord's plan for humanity and the universe. We do not pray merely about things. We pray towards something, and that something is magnificent the fulfillment of the Father's purposes and his kingdom come. Every single little prayer, every single prayer is part of a big puzzle, praying towards the fulfillment of God's plans for humanity. And so Holy Spirit, I just pray in these moments. Why if you're comfortable, why don't we just, if you, particularly if you just want to respond, just a, a deeper walk with the Lord, a deeper invitation into prayer that you sense the Spirit drawn you into. Just love to pray that the Lord would just come upon you in a fresh way this morning for that. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.
Come, Holy Spirit. Increase your presence now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Holy Spirit, thank you that you want to share with us the heart of the Father. Thank you that we don't have to twist your arm up your back to get you to talk to us. Thank you that you are for us, that you are towards us, that you long to know us, that you long to share your heart with us. And so, God, I pray right now in Jesus' name, God, make us a people of prayer. Teach us, oh God, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray, God, in the days ahead. Lord, we thank you for the prayers that have got us thus far. Thank you for the faithful prayers that have brought us to this moment in our lives personally and this church, oh God, that has been planted and birthed and brought together, God. We thank you that prayer, we know and we testify to the power of prayer already. God, we pray, Lord, for even more. We pray for a greater mantle to carry the dreams of heaven. Bring us into moments of deep intimacy with you, personally and corporately in the days ahead. And lay your heart on ours, oh God. Lay your heart on ours, God, in a new way. Help us carry your dreams for our children, for our town, for our city, and for this nation. Help us to pray those things through so that we can see your kingdom come. Lord, let our biggest legacy be our prayers. God, for those of us who are younger, Lord, we want to be at a point where our own children can say that it was the prayers of our parents that shaped who we became, Lord. And Lord, we ask that your presence, oh God, would come on us in new ways as we meet and gather together in the days ahead. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Um, do you stick around. Please go and uh, relieve the kids' workers if you could. That would be great. Um, and then come back and get some tea and coffee. Um.